From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human-Centered. Today on Human-Centered, Jerry Davis, recent CASBIS Fellow, and the Gilbert and Ruth Whitaker Professor of Business Administration and Sociology at the University of Michigan interviews renowned sociologist and former CASBIS fellow Amitai Etzioni about his influential book, The Active Society. The two discuss the fracturing of our shared realm of fact, the necessity of re-encapsulating capitalism, and Amitai's project to support civil dialogues. Really excited to be speaking with Professor Amitai Etzioni today. Uh, he's one of my intellectual heroes, as he is for many of us in the field of sociology. Uh, big influence on organization theory, which is my own domain of study, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences around 1966. Is that right? Right. And during that year, uh, he wrote his book, The Active Society. Uh, which I learned was the first time I had ever seen the word postmodern appearing in print. So in case you thought that French theorists had invented this idea sometime around 1985, turns out it has a much longer history than that. Um, but I'd love to start out hearing about your experience at the Center for Advanced Study, sort of where you were in your career at that time and, and what the experience was like. You know, it's gone through a lot of... Uh, twists and turns on the wine dark sea over, over the few decades. Uh, and uh, it seems like you were there at uh, kind of a golden era. So maybe you could share a little bit about your experience then and how you came to write the Active Society. Thank you for your kind words, first of all. And uh, I'm really delighted to revisit uh, my uh, association as a center because um, in all seriousness, when people ask me what I would like to write on my tombstone, it says only a very short thing. The author of the Active Society, which I think is my by far my most important work, and it's the one which I could not have written in any other place than at the center. So, so tell me about the book and why you think of it as your masterwork. So, that will take me an extra minute. So, let me put in two halves. One is, uh, historically, people started by being what I would call passive. Uh, in that sense, that if you go, go, let's say, to the old Greeks, they did not think about the world as something they can marshal. Things happened. It was fate. And you accepted nature. It was cruel, and, uh, but nothing could do about it. And you accepted your status. In effect, Aristotle already created a theory which later in the evil ages the church adopted what you and I would call status acceptance. And that the next idea was if you were born a lord, God wanted you to be the lord. And if you were born a, a serf, God wanted you to be the serf. Don't try to become a lord. Everybody should do the best they could in whatever way they were casted. Yeah, it's a great chain of being. And in this, and of course, the same in India. It's not just a Western idea. In India, very much the ideology is 
if you're uh, lower class, you should uh, pick up the shit. And if you're upper class, you should enjoy other people picking up the shit. But you should not try to mix things up. So then came the, the end of enlightenment and Renaissance and science. And we moved from a passive orientation to an active orientation toward nature. So we started saying we can use resources, uh, make electricity, uh, make steam engines, which will use the force of nature, like hydrofoils and such, to allow us to marshal nature. Actually, we thought we were doing much better. We recently discovered that between COVID and climate change, that we haven't really quite learned how to do that. But we, the basic idea was, the idea of science was to unlock the sequence of nature. So we came active toward nature. Then came Karl Marx and the Fabian Socialist and said, you know what? Don't look just at nature. Look also at society, not as given. Let's see if we can reorganize, revolutionize, reorganize society. So we extended the active orientation from nature to society. Then came Freud and he said, you know what? Let's also do the same thing to the self. Do not accept the demons as given. We can go, you need a priesthood of the psychoanalyst, but you can help you marshal yourself. And now, most interestingly, uh, this year we come into the uh, uh, a bestseller book called The Codebreakers. We are now going to do the same thing to DNA. So we're now going to take our biology and also say, we're going to turn the active orientation onto our body. So the whole history, from my viewpoint, is an ever-expanding of the active orientation from being passive and accepting and uh, accepting our status, accepting our fate, to becoming, in the older language of the 1960s, we'd say, have men on top, the human being being charged. Now, so you come now to, to the society, and I ask the question, how can a society marshal itself so it can reform itself in line with the goals its members have? To make it very short, it's like this. We start with the idea which comes from cybernetic. Cybernetic takes the position that there are machines which are equivalent of the muscle power. And on top of it, there are communication systems which guide the machines, the equivalent of the, the nerves in the body. And so when you want to accomplish things, it's not enough to have more muscle power, but you also have to have good signaling systems. So that's the idea of cybernetic. So half the book asks how you get better signals, how you get process information better, how you make better decisions. But then when you come to human society, you cannot have a top-down system because down there are not machines, but are people. Are human beings. And so you need combine any top-down signaling which comes from the government with the consensus and active participation of those who are the people. Now, in a simplistic way, it's supposed to work as a democratic process. In effect, the democratic process is often very inadequate. So if you have uh, half the book that deals the question, under what conditions can you mobilize people like civil, civil, above all, so social movements like the civil rights movement, like the Black Lives Matters, like the Me Too movement, and like the environmental movement. These are all uh, movements which are not top down, which 
verbalize people. And then we get a very complicated interaction between the overriding top-down system and the up-mobilizing system. And they allow us to restructure society with great difficulties in line with our values. So the book tries to spread out what are the building blocks of society that's in charge of its own history rather than subject to it. It's a very optimistic vision. And one of the thoughts that occurs to me is it's 53 years later, uh, social sciences had decades to develop. We should be really good at this. Uh, We should have developed a set of tools for sort of monitoring the information, uh, conveying our our understandings of it, sharing those with society and coming to some kind of democratic consensus to intervene in the ways that you describe. And I wonder how your your viewpoint about that has changed. I'm thinking in particular that at the time that you wrote, there were three major broadcast networks and a relative handful of major media outlets. And there were mechanisms of coming to a consensual view or a relatively consensual view on uh, reality. We're now living at a time when large chunks of our electorate have a very peculiar view of uh, what happened in the election in November, uh, what happened on January 6th, whether there is a COVID pandemic out there in the land or not. Uh, It seems like things that should be matters of very wide consensus seem to elude that now. So I wonder, you know, it's uh, Shoshana Zuboff refers to this as an epistemic crisis, and I, I think there's a, there's something about that that there that uh, it's not just can we gather the data, but even if you had data, what does it take to some to come to some kind of consensus about sort of what's going on in the world? Even a map uh, these days can be quite contentious. Even the most basic. Seemingly basic factual matters seem to elude us. So, so what are what are your thoughts about that, Professor? Of course, you're absolutely right that there has been enormous uh, f- uh, fractioning uh, of, of the factual world. So, you, you, in the past, we at least could agree about the facts, and then we would argue about the policies. Uh, though, you know, there was McCarthyism, and there was so that it, it's not like before that everything was. Uh, uh, beautiful. What I think is happening is there is a consensus there, it's just some of my colleagues don't want to hear it because it's a very uncomfortable consensus. Here's one way of putting it. Arthur Schlesinger used to argue that the United States is going through alternative periods of liberal and conservative periods. So the best conservative period then came uh, uh, Roosevelt, uh, then came McCarthy, then came uh, Democrats got elected. So if you go forth and back, a uh, liberal period, democratic period. I think it's a wrong reading of American society. I think we have a conservative country with very short and troubled liberal interludes. That's why, for instance, Clinton, supposedly the liberal period, what did he do? He signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined the marriage has to be between, between men and a woman. He ended social welfare as we knew it. He froze all social programs for five years 
in order to get a balanced budget. So uh, it, it was a very much of a liberal period. I was in the Carter White House, uh, and whatever you say about Carter, by the way, he was a wonderful ex-president. But during his presidency, the only the only thing he really, 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 really believed in was balancing the budget. So uh, he was a very conservative, good Christian uh, president. And, and again, about Obama, I admired Obama. He he flattered me by reading my communitarian books and quoting them. How can I resist that? He's a wonderful human being, a wonderful family, wonderful thing that we elected him. Uh, how much did he achieve as a liberal? It's not a very long list. And now we, and then we had Trump, and now we get a momentary correction, which I think will last about a year. Uh, and, and, and we're going to get a very bad midterm election, and then a competent Trump in 2024. So uh, what does it tell you? The underlying consensus of the American society is not liberal. That's why uh, we have such hard time when we're trying to defund police and transfer billions, which as, he, as Biden does in his farm program only to black farmers and such. So the American society will not stand. Now, please don't mishear me. Uh, if it's up to me, I would, I'm afraid, I believe in, rep in reparations. I believe there is systematic racism. I believe major, major reform are necessary. But you're not asking me what is my dream ticket. You're asking me what I see is the American society. American society that took conservatives for every liberal. And uh, the, the consensus is a very raw and ugly consensus. And the question, the real challenge is how to get into a period in which given that background, given that human nature, uh, we can get some uh, very major overdue reforms, beginning with the climate change and on to social justice. So let me move us on uh, from this theme. You recently published an essay in Society mm -hmm. uh, called Capitalism Needs to be Reencapsulated. And I had the opportunity to uh, read the essay uh, in draft form and then write my own response. I, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, you are describing there a similar hinge point that we are at right now. And so if I summarize the article, it feels like you describe a pendulum swing between uh, an encapsulated capitalism where there's firm regulation in place and where those energies released by markets are, are kept in check. And then the, the capsule breaks down as you describe it, sort of the regulation goes away and those energies sort of uh, jump the tracks in a sense and uh, create various sorts of pathologies. And you describe this long list of uh, business bad behavior, uh, like marketing nicotine capsules to teenagers or, or pre-teenagers using candy flavorings, pharmaceutical companies drastically raising the price of essential medicines for vulnerable populations, for-profit prisons for grown-ups or for-profit prisons for toddlers on the border. <laughs> and you, you have a sort of grim list of the many 
uh, it's like I describe it as a buffet of pathology in American capitalism. So many businesses are doing things that seem really reprehensible. And uh, I found no way to disagree with your list. <laughs> and what struck me was, is this happening everywhere in capitalism? Or is there dis something distinctive to the American system of capitalism that, uh, that breeds monsters? And I guess my own take on this was, you don't hear about a lot of Danish companies or French companies uh, coming up with for-profit prisons or marketing, <laughs> marketing nicotine pods to, to children. So is there something about American capitalism I, uh, I, I use the phrase an institutional terroir that breeds monsters, uh, or am I misreading that? Uh, I appreciate that you joined the conversation on, on the page of society, because I believe it is an important subject. So just one minute, 30 seconds to step back to the basic image. So I think it's helpful to compare capitalism to nuclear energy. In a nuclear energy, if you have a very well and very strong tower or capsule, you can get very cheap, very clean energy, which can fuel everything, hospitals, farms, and so on. If the energy breaks out of the capsule, it creates radioactive deserts. So it is this idea that it's well encapsulated is wonderful. Run amok is terribly dangerous. And so now what's the capsule made of? It's very important of two things. First of all, values. In many societies, there is a notion that something we just don't do. The reason that's important is in the end, you can police only that much. So if you, if everybody in society is out to go maximize themselves the way my colleagues in economics tell them they should do, uh, then there'd never be enough police and, and custom agents and inspectors and accountants to supervise them. So the starting point has to be a, a, a notion that a decent profit is fine, but good is not. Uh, so some notion, uh, I, I remember when in, in a previous scandal of, uh, of junk bonds, there were some firms, all so-called old firms on Wall Street, so we're going to not touch this stuff. That's not us. Uh, now, so A, our values, B, their regulations. Now, I so happen, I so happen to be, I was there at the birth of the deregulation movement because in the Democratic Carter White House came a guy, a professor, a liberal professor from Alcan, from Cornell, and he called for deregulation of airlines. And he argued it's going to reduce the cost of flying. Carter loved it. And that started the deregulation movement. Then Reagan came and so on and so on. Trump, uh, of course, did more to it. But basically, most regulations don't work anymore. Even if they're on the books, the Congress got it. The enforcement mechanisms cut the budget for enforcement, like it did to IRS, by the way. Uh, uh, so the point. Uh, just to give an example, uh, there is a bureau in charge of controlling guns, but it, it does not allow to use computers. So, so uh, they have millions of pieces of paper. You want to find something, go for it. 
by all means, we did the paperwork. So, and they, they have eight people to regulate uh, thousands of drug dealers, uh, at gun dealers. And so uh, we basically, in effect, got at the regulatory mechanism. And the result is that I did that study as you referred to. So what I did, I said, people often talk about what's wrong with the government, how wonderful the private sector is. So I said, okay, every time I point out that the major industry, not, not one corporation, the major industry is engaging in illegal behavior, people say, well, that's a rotten apple, but the barrel is fine. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to at random put, put my hand and put out one industry after the other and have a look. So I pulled out 20, and in each one of them have a major systematic corruption. Like the opiates they sell, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, like the people who, like Volkswagen, designing the car in such a way that it will pass the pollution test uh, while it's polluting. Now, this is not some slouched little fly by night company, it's one of the most important car companies. So, the conclusion is capitalism, the American, you're right, American capitalism is particularly wild. Now, it's, it's also bad in China. So China is now beginning to step in. Again, not because they're so virtuous, because they discovered there's one other thing. When capitalism and Samoki does one more thing, it also builds up political power. So what happens in the United States, very often the companies legalize what is corrupt. Uh, so they pass laws, first of all, of course, allow unlimited campaign contribution by corporations. But they also uh, write regulations in such a way that they cannot fail them. So for instance, nursing homes now are allowed to inspect themselves. They wrote, they wrote the law that way. So it's not only the regulations have been sent out and not enforced, but the, the laws are being rewritten in favor of capitalism and corporations. In, in China, they're beginning to change it because they don't like the political power of the corporations. They're beginning to introduce regulations. In France, in Germany, in Scandinavia, the capitalism is more regulated, but it's also breaking through its moorings. So it, you will find uh, also French, especially in France, a corporation engaging quite a bit of mischief. But they have such strong social markets that they can, to, at least to some degree, at least protect people from the most extreme consequence of capitalism, which we do not, which we don't. That's useful to hear. I mean, it does feel that an essential component of thinking about re-encapsulating capitalism or how we think about capitalism at all is to really take seriously just how much cross-national diversity there is. Uh, so I, I want to make sure in our remaining time, you have a new project called Civil Dialogues. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about what that is all about. And thank you for asking. That's really, I care deeply about. So uh, about five years ago, uh, I uh, got a major theater in Washington, D.C. to give me the stage once a month. And I got people from different viewpoints uh, to have uh, dialogues. Uh, for instance, in one case, we had uh, an African-American professor of law from Georgetown 
arguing about the forthcoming 2020 elections, that they were completely irrelevant. There was no difference between Democrats and Republicans, but we needed there was a revolution. And we had on the stage the head of Third Way, who argued that this election could be an epoch-defining election, it's going to make all the difference in the world. And we had two other people in between, and we had an hour and a half conversation. And if you went away from listening to that, in the moment I mentioned, they're all on tape, by the way, they're all on YouTube. Uh, you went away with understanding very clearly what the different positions are, what the middle ground is. And we had a conversation about China, between China hawks and China doves, and even between Trump supporters and Trump opponents. 25 of them, they're all on YouTube. They all were very civil. Then came COVID and we had to close down. And I decided I wanted to do the same thing online. And it took me six very painful months to work with Silicon Valley to try to create an online version of that, civildialogues.org. And I did two unusual attributes. One is you have to identify yourself because I discovered that when you go to all the other places where people have aliases, the conversation is very toxic. If you go to uh, civildialogue.org, my little thing, you see all, all, all conversation is civil. So I proved correct that having to identify yourself makes people much more civil. Now people tell me that as, as of the Federalist Papers, it's very important for the centers to have anonymity. And I say, absolutely. There are a thousand places you can be anonymous. I'll give you one place not. Second and last, the founding fathers were very worried about the mob, impulsive decisions. The serious consensus building requires time and deliberations. So my civildialogue.org uh, has a computer system which tallies the vote, but only once a week. So it gives you time to listen to other people. You can push a button and change your vote. So there is time for deliberation. You, and you can, you can vote closure, but not before a week. And so we succeeded after quite a bit of effort to have so far hundreds of people conducting dialogues on a large variety of topics from bioengineering to China policy to childcare policy, but uh, I'm very much looking for more people to use this system. And my tagline is, Zoom is in real time, be at any time. So people can wake up in the middle of the night, it's all textual, uh, and join the conversation. So I hope very much my fellow at the center and anybody else listen to this program and you yourself, uh, join the dialogue on civildialogue.org. Uh, the one thing I can assure you, it'd be civil. No, it's a fantastic model. I mean, we really have to wonder why the incredible tools that we have for communication, for dialogue, and for greater democracy have not spread more deeply into our society. I keep wondering. I used to end my talks 10 years ago, starting 10 years ago, and up until now, on the question, where is the workplace democracy app that turns General Motors into a kibbutz? And I know the kibbutzim may not have worked out as magically as they might have, but it is 
surprising that we do not have more grassroots democracy. We have the tools in our pockets, you know, almost every one of us to be able to have civil dialogues, to be able to vote, to share our sentiments, to persuade each other one way or another. Why are we using these tools to get people into attention-focused ad-based businesses rather than better dialogue and more democracy. <laughs> it seems to me that there's great opportunities there if we could get some of the current Silicon Valley companies out of the way. And I'm really delighted to see that you're pioneering this with civildialogues.org um, so that people can understand at a ground level you know, what civilized dialogue on real issues is all about when, when it's not anonymous and where people have an opportunity to add their opinion. And as you said, change it. If, if a miracle happens and people's minds are changed by civil dialogue. So thank you for that, uh, for that great contribution. Uh, thank you. And let's close on, and that's which all ties together to be active. You need other people. You can't change the world by yourself. So get people together, see if you can form a joint position, and let's, let's take it from there. I love it. Well, thank you, Professor Amitai Etzioni. It has been wonderful speaking with you. And I, I hope that people listening to this have an opportunity to visit civildialogues.org. And if they're interested, maybe they could visit our dialogue on uh, society, the Journal Society's website. That was Jerry Davis in conversation with Amitai Etzioni. You can learn more about this and other CASBIS events by visiting our website at casbs.stanford.edu, or you can find us on Twitter, we're at CASBIS Stanford. The CASBIS live event series, Social Science for a World in Crisis, is still on its short summer holiday, but in the meantime, we've got more original interviews coming your way, so be sure to follow us in your podcast app of choice. You won't want to miss those. Until next time, from everyone at CASBIS and the Human Centered Team, Thanks for listening.